Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, April 17th, 2020, and what, 15 minutes before we started recording, Drew, the, the news broke about Comic-Con being canceled for this year. Yeah, uh-huh. yet another thing we were looking forward to that will not happen. Uh, uh, kind of the theme of this year, isn't it, Jim? <laughs> But again, what was it? Governor Newsom of of California just yesterday was talking about the fact that when it came to giant sports events and and that sort of thing, you know, we were looking at 2021, right? That's the gist of what he said yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which made me think, okay, well, we're never going back to Disneyland, uh, you know, (laughs) because if there is one place that encourages you to be as close together to complete strangers as possible... It's Disneyland, so I have no idea how they're going to handle that. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, we we've been watching those news conferences very, mm-hmm. very attuned, very attuned to that stuff. So yeah, it's it's crazy. Well, you know, and the interesting thing is, it's not just Comic Con that got canceled. Because remember, uh, back in March, we were supposed to get WonderCon, and what they they announced at that point was that was going to be postponed. Okay. That they're going to try to look for a later date. Uh, in the year, and evidently as part of this announcement, WonderCon for uh, 2020 officially got canceled. And with apologies to Dan Z, but this really doesn't bode well for Star Wars Celebration this year either, does it? No, um, it does not. I think that they were probably looking to Comic-Con uh, to take the lead on that one. And with Comic-Con canceled, mm-hmm. I think that will follow suit probably... I would mm. I would not be surprised if we we get an announcement by the end of the day, quite frankly. Mm. So or, or, or before the end of the show. Yes, that's uh, true. <laughs> all right. Well, with, anyway, with news speak- moving as it does, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think speaking of things moving, you and I have been talking about Soul. You know, Pixar's Pete Doctor movie that you know we've all been looking forward to because it's of its amazing art direction and its interesting subject matter, and it hung in there for so long. It was like. By June 19th, we'll have our act together. And now they blinked. Now, uh, what is it? It's pushed off till November 20th of this year, mm-hmm. which, of course, means what? Ray and the Last Dragon had to vacate its you know, November release date. So right. that Paul Briggs, Dean Wellen, and John Ripa movie now opens on March 12th, 2021. That's my 62nd birthday, by the way, folks. Please put that oh on Oh, my God, Jim. How did, right. we, how did we not celebrate this year? Oh, well, you know, we were, we, we were all hiding under our desks. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, so, uh, by the way, you were pointing out uh, that this isn't necessarily a bad thing, is it? It now has this March release date. No, I mean, the last time Disney had a March release date for an animated uh, Walt Disney Animation Studios feature, it was Zootopia. Mm-hmm. which, you know, grossed more than a billion dollars worldwide and became the Oscar winner for Best Animated Feature. So mm-hmm. maybe they're thinking, ah, March is pretty good for, for Raya, you know? It's interesting they didn't take the June date, the June 2021 mm-hmm. date of the next Pixar movie, that mm-hmm. there'll be a Animation Studios movie in March and a Pixar movie in June, which is mm-hmm. also really crazy. But yeah, it's going to be good. And And more to the point, face it, you and I have... Been kind of hearing the same things about Raya and the Last Dragon. Not necessarily really bad things, but they're still doing tweaking. They're still playing with the story, that sort of thing. So suddenly getting four more months 
for your delivery date for a final locked print. Not necessarily a bad thing in this situation. No, I mean, I think we, we've been around animation long enough to know that, that they're not really ever finished. They're just released. So that, that, that's it. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, getting that little bit more breathing room, that's what allows you to take a really good film and make it a great film. And, and speaking of great, on the other hand, what did you think of DuckTales from this past Saturday? The double uh, O duck and you only crashed twice. Oh, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was so good. Didn't you love it? I did. I did, though. You know, I have to admit, the the Rescue Rangers cameo, I both loved, but at the same time was kind of intrigued as to how it was handled, the fact that the characters never speak. And it it really, I mean, this is a cameo appearance. They they just sort of wander into scenes and then wander out and then, you know, come in at a crucial moment in the finale. But was it Jim Magon who... It was, uh, no, it was Frank... uh, Oh, that's right. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was saying about how when he started uh, on the DuckTales show that, like, the two characters that they couldn't do anything with were Mickey Mouse, which obviously mm-hmm. makes sense, and the Rescue Rangers. And then they had to kind of sneak them in, and then, you know, they were not identified even in the scripts in case those were flagged, and and ultimately they got <laughs> oh. them in there. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, and- because remember, you know, well, actually, you were the one talking about, I guess it's Lonely Island that's working on the Rescue Rangers movie? Yes. He seemed to think is dead. It, it, it's not dead. It's it's very much in development right now and has a very, very interesting spin on it. But, yeah, I think that maybe they were worried about that clashing. But, I mean, the fact that they got him in there, they got the theme song in there. I mean, mm-hmm. I really loved how they handled it. So far, these three episodes are amazing. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, I think these might be the best batch yet, quite frankly. The thing that amazed me is um, to get an emotional story arc out of Launchpad. Um, yeah. That, yeah, I mean, th- that was a, a really ballsy way to go, and they, they made it work, you know. Yeah, um, they, so. just, they always know how to just twist it just enough mm-hmm. that it's so unexpected. The whole, like, VR thing I thought was great. I just loved mm-hmm. it. Uh, and, and, totally. the, and the three caballeros are coming back in two weeks, Jim. So we'll have even more to talk about then. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, speaking of things that are coming up, you also pointed out that on May 3rd, uh, we get the second half of season four of Rick and Morty. But we finally have names of the five episodes that are going to drop in this bunch. We've got the Never <laughs> Never Ricking Morty. That's the debut of the second half of the season. That, that drops at 1130 on Adult Swim on the 3rd. Then there's <laughs> Promortius. Uh, kind of love love that. <laughs> you know, uh, May 10th. Uh, and then May 17th, again, seriously, the episode is called The Vat of Acid Episode. That That's the actual title of the show for that week. So I wonder what that's about, Drew. And then uh, May 24th, we have Childrick of Mort. And then the season four finale, which airs on May 31st, is Star Mort, Return of the Jerry. Uh, which, <laughs> well, what were you saying about, you know, you I, know I, think, I, I think Jim's that, uh, Dan Z might really love that last episode. What's kind of interesting is that, you know, we also have Solar Opposites, which is the show that was created by Justin Roiland, the co-creator of Rick and Morty. 
And that drops on Hulu on May 8th. Uh, how many episodes? Do we know how many? I don't think we know. know how many yet, but it's, we're going to have mm. a lot of Justin Roiland that week, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Well, but you're amused by this because the new trailer dropped. I was just watching it. And yeah, <laughs> this one's a little extreme. Uh, and it, it's it's dropping on now Disney-owned Hulu. Yeah. Uh, so, um uh, by the way, how did I miss uh, what we do in the shadows coming back? That came back this week. It came back this week, Jim. There were two episodes back to back. They're on. Man. They're on Hulu right now, Jim. So don't okay. worry. You can go over there okay. and watch it. Um, okay. They were hilarious, including mm. uh, Benedict Wong from uh, Doctor Strange plays a necromancer in the first episode, and you will okay. die, Jim. He is so um, funny. Gotta see this. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. But maybe we should pivot now to some more family-friendly <laughs> animation. And, and, and I'm almost embarrassed that on our last show we didn't talk about this, the At Home with Olaf series. Which... Yeah, I think they had just started last week, though. So I think I, I give us some – I cut us some slack, Jim. Don't worry. Okay. Well, okay. according to this, the first one, Fun with Snow, uh, debuted back on April 6th. And, in fact, just – I want to say like an hour ago, the eighth in the series, Hide and Seek, just dropped. The thing is, I didn't know until I was doing the research this morning that um, this was already in the works. Um, oh. You know, when the pandemic happened? Well, this is what the uh, EW published about it. Here's the quote. Back in February, Hiram Osmond, supervising Olaf Animator from Frozen, approached Disney leadership with an idea, exploring day-to-day life with the lovable snowman voiced by Josh Gad. When he's not saving the world with Anna and Elsa, what else does he do, was the idea. Osmond, also Moana's co-head of animation, told DW that the pitch was a hit with the blessing of Frozen director Jennifer Lee and Walt Disney Animation president Clark Spencer, he set off solo to develop a proof of concept and storyboards for episodes that would eventually become a di- set of digital shorts. I, I had to do it by myself. There were no resources for me. They said, just go, and I did. And then everything changed. Evidently, this was going forward before any of this went on. And uh, according to them, there are 20 total at home with Olaf planned, and two of them are supposed to be hand drawn. Wow, um, I'm very into that. But all right, but here's the thing that confuses me. When I saw Hiram Osmond was involved, it's like I thought Hiram left Disney. And in fact, I did some some digging and yeah, back on March 18th there was an, an announcement that Hiram was supposed to direct Little Nemo in Slumberland, a, a brand new feature version of the seminal comic strip. And this was for On Animation in Montreal. And I didn't hear anything about that crashing and burning. I didn't hear anything about losing financing. I, think. I wonder what went on there. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's great that Hiram's back at Disney. I, I've been lucky enough at a couple of press events to get to talk with him. Very personable guy. And also, Donnie Osmond's nephew, is that Yeah, right? did you see Donnie Osmond last night on the... I did, I did. And, and by the way, were, were those all his grandchildren or who? Yeah, yeah, they were his grandchildren, yeah. Okay, yeah. all right, I get it. So, um, yeah, yeah. I actually, for something that looked like it had a $1.45 budget, that was surprisingly entertaining last night. Oh, it was, um, a, it was a ton of fun. I thought it, it was, was. Really, it was really great, yeah. Okay. Still trying to figure um, out how... Uh, 
how Julianne and the brother got all those camera angles, but you know, <laughs> Disney magic, Jim. I'm sure. D- D- Disney magic. That's yeah. a very interesting. Yeah, particularly that shot from inside the oven. <laughs> you know, but okay. Anyway, don't get me wrong. I, I love me some Olaf, and in fact, I, I when you mentioned the the pumpkin episode about that one's particularly a little weird. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, had to Olaf gives you nightmares, kids. <laughs> there you go. But but here's the thing: Josh Gad has been everywhere lately, and don't get me wrong for good reasons. You know, he's reading kids' books every night, and he was doing some promotion, of course, for the sing along show, but. What's fascinating is almost every interview he does, somebody brings up that recap of the original Frozen that's in Frozen 2, and they always talk about, you should do that for every Disney film. And Josh is like, I know, (laughs) you know, and it's like, I would love to do that. But, you know, somebody at Disney, well, first of all, somebody actually has to be in the office at Disney, and that ain't happening for a while. But yeah, coming the, from the, the, coming from someone who worked at Disney, I can only imagine the emails that something like that would have to, you know, get sent and the approvals that would have to go through. I mean, by the time those things would get approved, mm-hmm. uh, we would get have another pandemic out, I think, by that time. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine that? Like Star Wars signing off or anyone from Marvel? Mm-hmm. Not happening. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and in fact, it's interesting that you say that because... I got to interview, okay, Swampy Marsh and... Uh, Dan, Dan Provermeyer. Dan Provermeyer. Yeah. And they were talking... Remember they did the special Marvel-themed episode and then the Star Wars-themed episode of Phineas and Ferb? Yeah, of course. And, and what was fascinating to talk with them was it's like evidently Marvel was just impossible. Every page of the script had to be questioned. Every aspect of the show, how you know the characters were portrayed and that sort of thing. Whereas for the Star Wars people, they sent them the script and it's like, yep, sure, good, go. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like, do whatever the hell you want. You know? <laughs> and so it, it's not uniform across the board. But no, you're right, it's Disney. You know, everyone's got to add their two cents and, you know, defend their department and all that. But... But anyway, nobody talked about what happened with Little Nemo in Slumberland, so I'd love to know what went on there and how Hiram wound up back at Disney. Um, Also, kind of interesting, nobody's talking necessarily on the record yet about how Trolls World Tour did. Um, Well, they were were saying it's like the highest grossing download or something of of all time, yeah. Your old home, IndieWire, uh, just today reported that multiple sources confirmed that the first week of video-on-demand rentals for Trolls World Tour likely passed 50 million in domestic revenue in its first six days. And supposedly they're hearing the same thing from foreign territories. But the interesting thing is that depending on who you you t- well, first of all, no one's willing to go on record, and it's evidently. 50 million is being considered maybe a little high, that it's more likely 35. But mm-hmm. on the other hand, that's not sharing that with exhibitors. And I'm, I'm hoping at some point we get somebody to talk on the record about this. And, you know, I'd love to have a little more information. Quibi, uh, <laughs> you know, which launched back on April 6th, just like Olaf. Uh, Jim, we're all going to remember, just like the JFK assassination or 9-11, we're all going to remember where we were oh. when Quibi launched, Jim. Oh, you're 
<laughs> Once again, Drew Taylor making friends left and right here, folks. You know, um, okay. Well, we bring up Queeby today because evidently they just ordered a, a new animated series for adults, Doomsland. Uh, this is by a, a, a creative and directed by Josh O'Keefe. And uh, evidently it's kind of a riff on the Mad Max movies. It, it's in Doomsland, the uh, infamous Danny Doom, an aspiring bartender land, sling beers in a hellish landscape in their mobile subterranean pub, the Oasis. But uh, you had your story to share about how Queeby has been doing so far? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was funny because somebody posted on Twitter the other day mm-hmm. that it was number 64 mm-hmm. on the on the Apple Store app downloads after mm-hmm. a app that has you slicing a cake of sand for ASMR purposes. And that's not a great sign, Jim. 64 on the download list. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I think that everyone, I mean, I've heard people from competing streaming services already calling it a joke. Um, I've not heard one person talking about the actual service or any of the programming on it. Mm-hmm. Have you? Have you looked at it, Jim? I, I mean, I, you're talking about two people who have nothing to do, <laughs> trapped inside, and we haven't turned on our phone to look at Quibi. Uh, I mean, come mm. on. To be fair here, my daughter would constantly make fun of the fact that, Dad, it's an iPhone. You can do other things with it besides do phone calls and text messaging. (laughs) There's this whole (laughs) world of things that you don't do. And you brought up the the other streaming services. You know, again, to sort of contrast what – how Queeby's doing versus Netflix. I mean, have you been watching what's been going on with the Netflix stock this week? Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I think now they say it's it's worth four times what Disney stock is. Yeah. Like, holy crap, that is crazy. But at the same time, the interesting thing is that just today, I mean, we've seen the stock jump. It's at a 52-week high, folks. I guess it was at share prices of $417 on Tuesday, and they jumped further on Wednesday. And I guess even today they're talking about is the ceiling for the stock – $450 a share or $500 a share. And and there's a whole bunch of analysts going, you know, we're not always going to be in the middle of a pandemic. You know, not everybody's not going to be trapped at home and looking for a streaming service to watch. So maybe don't buy as many shares of that. So, but uh, again, speaking of Netflix, when Drew and I get back, uh, we're going to share an interview that we did with Chris Byrne, the gentleman who just directed for that streaming service, a brand new animated feature called The Willoughby's. Okay, so I guess, first of all, before we get to our interview, we need to talk a bit about who Chris Pern is. He's actually been working in animation for a number of years now for a lot of different studios, right, sir? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he... He was born and raised on a goat farm in southern mm. Ontario, Canada. And you actually hear him talk about how his family is mm. in a farm in Canada now, which must be horrible for him because mm. he's stuck in L.A. But he uh, graduated from Sheridan College's classical animation program mm. and worked on movies like Surf's Up, Open Season, Shaun the Sheep, uh, Pirate Band of Misfits, Arthur Christmas, mm-hmm. uh, and Home. And I think he did some storyboarding on Early Man uh, mm-hmm. from a couple years ago and Chris was the head of story on Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs and co-directed Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. So, and he's awesome, and he's such a nice guy. Oh, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is, 
Back in November of 2015, he got tapped by Braun Animation Studios to write the screenplay for a movie adaptation of Lois Lowry's book, The Willoughbys. Now, I'm sure a lot of you folks already know uh, Lois Lowry, two-time Newbery Award-winning author, but this is the book she wrote back in 2008, and it's it's basically a parody of plucky orphan stories. It's, it's a very specific literary genre, and in fact... What's kind of interesting about what Chris, who, again, started off doing the screenplay, and I think it wasn't till 2017 that, you know, he, he got the nod to move up to direct this. He, he found a very interesting way into this story. Tell you what, let, let's let Chris explain. I, I love the movie, too, so I wanted to tell you guys that, first of all. Thanks, sir. Yeah, I, I thought it was very, very special and uh, can't wait to get into it with you. But uh, yeah, I thought it was it was great. It's a good time for animation. You know, the world, not great right now, but a lot of good animated movies coming up. Yeah, it's weird. It's really weird. Yeah. It seems like uh, it's one of those entertainment businesses that you can still kind of do. It sounded like, uh, like in Vancouver, Sony got their entire studio offline. Like oh, everybody's really? Everybody's working from home. It's, inc- yeah. it's incredible. Oh, yeah. I mean... You know, you, you've worked with some amazing filmmakers before, whether it's Nick Park or Chris Miller and Phil Lord or, or Gennady. And, and I was wondering what you kind of learned from those experiences. And did you p- apply any of those lessons to the Willoughby's? Uh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, I've been, I've been at this since 96 when I started in the business. And so, you know, bouncing around from, you know, 2D feature, TV stuff, you know, CG, all that, uh, all that, you know, LA based studio system stuff. Uh, you meet a lot of people. And I think like the thing that I think is consistent is that it's such a big machine and animation takes so much time and so much effort to make. And it's so collaborative and it takes so long to see the final product. Uh, I think the big takeaway I, I got from some of the good leaders that I worked with is, is sort of how to, how to trust that system, how to, how to cast the right people and how to, you know, even like situations where maybe I didn't quite have chemistry with the director, you learn so much because it is such a human process. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. And I've had, I've had some really good teachers. So like you, some of the ones you've listed are, are amazing. And Joe well, Fulton gave my break in LA and yeah, so many of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have this background that includes a number of different disciplines, as you just said. Um, yeah. Particularly, I was wondering if you used your time with Ardman in terms of, of creating the look of the Willoughby's, because it is kind of this, I mean, Jim and I were talking about it yesterday. We love the, the fact <laughs> that the mom, you know, knits and the kids look like they're made out of yarn and, and things like that. So so what did you yeah. sort of take from, from that time? I mean, it's definitely some of the soup uh, that goes into the conversation that got the final look. Um, I think one of the things I, I definitely learned from working on Pirates and Sean was a bit of that kind of practical camera. Like, uh, in, in some ways, I think um, stop motion is a bit like live action where, you know, it, you're, you're, you're somewhat, you know, able to put a camera in a real space and quickly get some you know, some idea of composition and, and, and sort of how to stage things. So one of the things that really sort of affected our, one of our choices was, you know, to, to, to kind of take this movie, which is really two movies. Like there's the, there's the film where they leave the house and then there's like the sitcom where they're stuck inside of that box. And that idea of camera and limiting our, our camera choices led us to a lot of other 
decisions that also kind of came into the design of it. I mean, I think the biggest kind of trigger towards like that handmade texture was actually the tone. Uh, the fact that the film had a bit of kind of dark subject matter and I never wanted it to be dark. I didn't want to do a Tim Burton. I didn't want to do a Lemony Snicket. I wanted to talk about earnest characters. And so uh, working with my production designer, the idea of like creating a highly textured world that was from the point of view of a cat, that really was the the seed to the look that ended up sort of feeding towards that stop motion style. But we really loved the idea that you could walk into Michael's and actually buy all the materials to make this movie. That was sort of <laughs> that that kind of became one of the backdrops, I think, to the tone of the film. That's so Does that cool. make sense? Yes. <laughs> now, now, speaking of which, though, I mean, you literally came in on the ground floor of this back in November of 2015. You were hired to do the screenplay. Uh, yeah. you know, that, I guess that was back when Adam Wood was supposed to direct. But um, the original Lois Lowry, I mean, uh, what I'm fascinated by is how you sort of pick and chose what to use for uh, this film. Because obviously the original book is, is, if you get right down to it, it's a parody of old-fashioned children's stories. You know, the whole yeah. plucky orphan. And, and But more to the point that, if I've got this correct, at one point, the parents were going to off the kids, and so the kids were, uh, you know, basically sending them away on the deadly vacation was more of a, you know, a, a reaction, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think with uh, with what Lois Lowry was doing in the book, the thing that attracted me was that she was being subversive about children's literature. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you if you go back and read the old Roald Dahl books and I'm Canadian, so I, you know, grew up reading Mordecai Richler and like, uh, you know, Jacob Tutu and they were dark. I mean, there was always like that kind of darkness, like in Matilda, you knew the parents were were the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she was really uh, trying to update that kind of tone for, you know, an audience now. And uh, one of the what ifs uh, that that sort of immediately sprang out of the book was like, what if we pivoted that towards children's film? So kind of, you know, take what she was parodying in literature and just slide it over to 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 the genre that that we live in. And really, my elevator pitchback was like, what if we took Grey Gardens and uh, and collided it with the rest of development for kids? And that was the momentum. That's sort of like how we how we how we got that that seed lit, you know, Um, great. (laughs) <laughs> but I, th- I think, you know, for me, it's like that subversive tone was really one of the things that felt original. And I think one of the big challenges over the, you know, the many drafts of the script and the many screenings was trying to level that because it was like going back to what we were talking about, I think, on design, like my ambition was never to make a film that felt mean. Like I wanted a movie about these kids that needed to learn about life and they needed to learn about the difference between a family you're born into and a family you choose. And I feel like that was something that was really sticky to talk about, but I always wanted it to be funny. And so trying to level that and trying to figure out how to get the motivations into the characters. So, you know, making sure that the parents felt somewhat, if not reasonable, at least understandable, you know, and I think anybody who has kids has had a moment where, you know, your, your, your child is teething and they haven't slept in nine days. And there's been a bit of you that, thinks about it you know it's like what if this what if i just left and and, and went back to, to to the bar and just was happy again uh, but then that goes away because they're cute and you love them but these parents don't have that that muscle and i think that was that felt funny to me um if we could talk about it in a way that was that was uh you know kind of in the tone of the film did does that make sense push, did you ever push things too far and have to kind of rein it in oh, of course okay. of course 
Yeah, of course. I mean, you guys are familiar with the animation process. Like, it takes us so long to get to a final product where you get everything together. Um, I kind of think it's a bit like slow motion stand-up, where I have to wait almost three years to hear if the jokes are landing. And so along the way, we we do a lot of screenings and uh, just a lot of call and response. And so I think, you know, every time we would throw the movie up, the biggest challenge was trying to find an audience that could you know, kind of sit through 85 minutes of storyboards or, you know, kind of, you know, have like, you know, finding people who, who weren't so close, like out of the crew to really give us that honest feedback. And you learn so much as you go through that process. And the trick is to try to do it early enough that you can still adjust your storytelling. So that way you're, you're hitting the tone that you're after. What, what was the biggest change? What was the biggest change? Yeah. Um, you know, we at the beginning, because Martin Short and Jane Krakowski are so awesome, and the joke of what those characters represented popped out very quickly, um, there was a lot of them in the movie. And what we really sort of realized was that the ensemble of the kids was was where the heart of the film was. And it's that natural thing. I think at the beginning, you look for the shiny pennies and the things that you can kind of really understand. And their joke was really clear. But uh, less was more. And so that was one of those things where, you know, we kind of had to go through some of those trials and errors and, and figure out sort of, you know, where the heart of the film was and, and how that, um, how that would all sit in. But well, speaking uh, of, of which, this is a, a crazy hard Venn diagram to land between, <laughs> you know, the, the satirical elements of the, the story, but at the same time, in order to care about the kids, they have to be sincere. And the very thing you were talking about, the humor, satire, sincerity and, and humor and heart. That's a lot to try to land and to hit the right tone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, definitely wearing my influences on my heart. Like, I think Harold and Maude is one of the films that I was watching a lot at the very beginning because it was to me, it sort of hit that sweetness in a way that. You know, I, I, I wanted this film to not feel like a traditional animated film. So I wanted to kind of have a bit of that that kind of live action approach where it sort of allowed characters to be a little honest in a way that, um, you know, it could kind of it could kind of tangent off of those emotions. And I think finding that that thread or like you say, the Venn diagram, um, there was a lot of trial and error. But in, it comes back to, I think, just making sure that we were always clear on the motivations and when we started to break down what sort of each kid needed to 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 learn it really helped to sort of organize where the film was going to go because we always knew there was going to be a buddy comedy between jane and tim like that oscar felix found itself pretty early in the story um it was just trying to figure out sort of how to illustrate that you know tim represented the past and jane represented the future and the twins are kind of now and once we once we really anchored down on where where each kid was in every scene then it then we could twist it and um you know finding tools like the narrator which was you know uh, allowed us to stay in the land of parable like he because it's a cat's tail we could always sort of be a little bit whimsical in terms of the logic of the film because he could jump in and help us you know, in terms of getting the audience over some of the bigger, sketchier humps <laughs> um, for like when when the kids decide to, to, to send their parents away. I mean, we, we use we use we use him as our kind of uh, fourth wall to sort of help the audience through some of that stuff to make sure that that motivation always felt like it was coming from someplace earned and not random. Does that make sense? Oh, well, certainly. But speaking of yeah. which, whoever 
suggested casting Ricky Gervais as, <laughs> as, as the voice of a cat. I mean, there's never been a better voice of a cat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, to be really honest with you, he was actually there before I was, and uh, he was already attached because he was doing another project at Braun. And so one of the challenges in reading the book was, what do we do with Ricky? And uh, the cat in the book was this bit character, and it was always a that was one of my favorite. I think Lois Lowry kind of Easter eggs is um, you know the cat in Mary Poppins was named Willoughby, and so then she named this book the Willoughbys, and they have a cat, but the cat didn't do a lot in the story. And I thought, well, that's a really fun Easter egg to kind of build out. What if this whole thing kind of came from the head of the cat? And then that also meant we didn't have to push Ricky out of his comfort zone because he kind of is amazing just doing what Ricky does, which is observing and poking fun at stupid humans. So we just uh, leaned into that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, can you talk about working with Craig Kelman on the design? I mean, he's kind of like this master designer. I mean, if people don't know, he he designed the characters from Madagascar and Hotel Transylvania yeah. and a lot of other things. Uh, I think yeah, that, I worked with him on Cloudy actually. Cloudy, that was Cloudy. Where I met him. and he yeah. was on Adam's Family, I think, the one from last year. So, what was that process of collaboration like, and and creating these characters with him? I mean, I think you know, throwing around the word genius is is something that. Uh, you want to hold back. But I think Craig is actually just a, a crazy genius. Like I, I, I honestly, I've never worked with anybody who can boil down a story in so few lines. And uh, the challenge when I worked with Craig on, on the cloudy films was trying to maintain the simplicity and just the, the, like just the utter, I'm, I keep going back to the word storytelling, the amount of storytelling he gets into a single pose is very, uh, difficult to translate into CG because it's 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 that it's that going from a two D image to a three D image and so uh, when we approached Craig, uh, both Kyle McQueen, my production designer, and myself, we've we've both worked with Craig before and and we're big fans and uh, he's a friend of mine and it was just when we approached him, he immediately understood I think that there was two movies in this story and it's sort of like this this world of the mummified Willoughbys and that that's the gray garden component and he really leaned into the idea that they were a little bit starved they're a little bit you know hungry to they didn't even they're so hungry they don't even know they're hungry does that make sense like and and, and all of the designs sort of like kind of lent into that emaciated mummified sort of approach and then in contrast he was the one that really came up with this idea that nanny's a hug and he literally designed her to be this this heart-shaped thing and 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 uh all of his poses and stuff it was it was kinetic in a way of like leaning into um as we moved into the animation side every choice in terms of how the characters move go back to that initial that initial set of choices so tim is trying to act like a grown-up but he's a kid. And I love the idea that like two months before the movie starts, he shot up seven inches and like, he's been wearing the same pants since, since his, his childhood and his legs have just kind of grown out. Like, you know, like a tree when it grows around a, a, a wire. Um, like all of that comes from Craig. And I think that, that Craig, I really had the conversation with Craig and Kyle and I, and I have a lot of faith in my, um, you know, in my production designer and really kind of trusting that once you, once you kind of, get that kind of gold then then you know you you start to feed that back into your story but um yeah that was i mean i I always think like you know when you look at five years you know five years from the beginning to the end some of those first steps define whether you succeed or fail and and they're really at the time they don't feel like they're the end of the world but they kind of are and and getting craig on board was a game changer for us and that really toppled i think a lot of like smart decisions down the line 
I know we're we're running out of time, but I think Jim, do you have another? Sorry. You have a yeah. last question? Yeah. Well, face it, you just mentioned again the five years you work on a film, and face it, these things are ocean lighters. You start building them in in one yeah. market and then launch them in another. And I, I can't I can't get. I was looking at the poster during doing the research tonight, and, and the catchphrase of this film, you know, like a family story for anyone who's wanted to get away from their family. And yeah, face it, get you know, right now pandemic. with all of us. You know, well, no, that's it exactly. You know, how many families right now? So you're coming to the marketplace with almost the perfect movie, you know, for this moment. And what does that feel like? It's weird because it's like we basically built a film to be consumed this way. Um, it was really designed to to sort of live in that that sitting on your couch watching a movie. Like it it it, it it's it's. It wants to be that. Um, and and yet, you know, I'm separated from my family because I'm social isolating in L.A. and they're up on a farm in Canada. And, you know, you miss the people you love and you hope the world goes back to normal. And, and you just it's it's a weird set of circumstances. I, I don't uh, I don't even know how to process it, to be honest with you. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the crew that I just I'm really happy that there's an audience that's going to be able to see the work that they made. And I hope people like it. And, you know, if there's any silver lining to all this, it's like, uh, maybe we need jokes and maybe this is a time for a fine film for, for people stuck at home. Maybe it'll stop families from breaking apart. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> for at least 90 minutes. Yeah. 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 No, it's weird. I, I literally finished the movie. Uh, we, we were at Skywalker in January mixing and we did our last, um, our last, uh, you know, color timing with the mix in February. And uh, two weeks later, we were into into this world we live in now. It, you, it's it's insane. It's insane. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us. Uh, I think we both love the movie, right, Jim? Oh, god, yeah, okay, yeah. That's a, in fact, what's particularly great about this is it's the perfect movie for watching and watching again. Man, I, I love. Uh, you know how you bury in the background the details like every time tim crosses the street there's this horrific automotive calamity right behind him yeah uh, you know so no great great fun you know that uh, was a that was a nod to harold and Maud. if you guys are familiar with that every time she gets in a car there's a car accident so there's, a, <laughs> there's a bunch of the shining buried in there too and there's a there's a deliverance joke and there's a lot of jokes from the from my childhood. So <laughs> on movies i was too young to see so that's yeah. why <laughs> Well, well awesome. thanks again for making time. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I, I, I really enjoyed chatting with him. And, you know, I can't now look at my cats without thinking that's Ricky Gervais's voice going around inside of their head. And that's why they look at me with so much disdain. Yeah, um, Ricky Gervais here. Got a lot of controversial ideas. Yeah. Oh, religion. Okay, that's uh, that's my Ricky wow, Gervais for you. That's yeah. the holy cow. All right. <laughs> the man has skills. Oh, oh my right. God. Yes, but but watch The Willoughby's starting on April 22nd. We both love the movie. Yeah. I, th- no, no. I think that's very apparent from our conversation. Mm-hmm. But it's really wonderful, and everyone should watch it. Okay. and But again, that's... Not showing up till April twenty second, and you you need things to do till then. You're Drew. You've been continuing your series of online viewings of the the Mission Impossible movies. Yes, yes, we did. We did uh, Mission Impossible Rogue Nation the other night, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. These are exhausting, Jim. Every time, if I ever suggest to you, oh, we should do it for something. <laughs> 
tell me no. At least with an animated movie, it's over in 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, These movies have never felt longer while live tweeting them. But uh, it was a lot of fun, and uh, we've still got a bunch of great guests. Uh, We've got Michael Kaplan's two-part interview coming up, who is... The, you know, costume, he's done everything from Blade Runner mm-hmm. to the new Star Wars movies and everything in between. He's a legend. He has never been nominated for an Oscar, which is just insane to me. Mm-hmm. But we cover everything. We talk about Clue. We talk about, you know, it, it's it's a really great conversation. Um, now, so now, just to be clear here, we're now talking about your Light Diffuse podcast. Oh, right? yes, we are. Well, this is the podcast, not on not on Twitter. Okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, so we'll keep listening and keep looking on Twitter, I'm sure we'll be doing more of these live watches, and maybe Jim and I will do a animated <laughs> live watch. Listen, I, if I, Len I, can, listen, if Len can do it, Jim, I think we got it. Okay, well, we'll start small. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll steamboat Willie. Okay, okay, yeah, we don't okay. want it. it's only eight minutes long. You know, so uh, that, that's Disney legal calling now. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, let's see. That now, uh, and if you're not listening to Light the Fuse, you could also maybe listen to Disney Dish, which I do with Lentesta, or Marvelous Disney, which I do uh, with Aaron Adams, a gentleman who edits a lot of the podcasts here, or or for that matter, uh, looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. <laughs> okay, we'll keep him away from Solar Opposites. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we yeah. have Universal Giant with Dustin Fuse, and we also have I Want That with Michelle Valladolid, which I'm going to be recording this weekend. And speaking of things that we're going to be recording, the show that we keep teasing you folks, I'm proud to prompt the teasing ends. Actual product coming out shortly. Or again, Drew will kill me. But in the meantime, Drew, if you have a fairly strong social media presence, right? Or I, I hope. I try. You know, I don't have a lot of Jim Hill engagement, which always breaks my heart. You know, when I see you tweeting with Dan Z, it's just like, oh, my God, I've been traded in for a younger model. But, uh, yes, I, Drew Taylor it is on Instagram. And also, we Light the Fuse is on Instagram. And Twitter and everything else. So okay. follow follow me and see if okay. Jim interacts well, with the, me on the, 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 the very <laughs> subtle nudging. I, I know how we, I'm spending my <laughs> afternoon now. Okay. But, but when, when I'm not tweeting with, with Drew Taylor, I will be over at, at you know, the, uh, you can find us at Twitter and Instagram is Jim Hill Media and then Facebook is Jim Hill Media News. So, uh Thanks for listening, folks. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost afraid to hop off, you know, podcasting now and see what else has been canceled. But, but we'll talk about that on the next show.